Every day I wake up and I think things can't possibly get any worse. And every day Donald Trump says, hold my filet of fish. Yeah. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. On the central coast of Oregon on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. Out in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week on those fine affiliates and many others. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Skyfall. Nope, it's not the nickname for the 800-point plummet in the Dow Jones on Wednesday as it fell over a cliff on new signs of a coming recession. The first such signals in the market since 2007. And Desi Doyen, I can't recall, was there a recession that happened in 2007 after these same signals appeared that year? Gosh, I seem to remember that. Yes, there were. It was was maybe more than just a regular old recession. It was an excellent recession. It was the best recession ever. A great recession. Well, in any event, that is not what Skyfall is. It was, however, a great James Bond movie from 2012, but that is also not the context for it on today's show. Skyfall, in fact, is the NATO nickname for a wildly experimental and apparently wildly dangerous nuclear-propelled missile system being developed by Russia, which, as of last Thursday, appears to have gone horribly and tragically awry, killing at least seven, including five nuclear engineers working on the project in an explosion on a testing platform in the White Sea off the north coast of Russia. And whatever went wrong may have also spread a whole bunch of nuclear radiation in a bunch of different directions uh, when it blew up on Thursday, if, in fact... This explosion was part of the nuclear uh, missile system, which Russia now concedes. uh, Well, they concede a nuclear reactor has blown up, but not much more. We'll be joined by atomic analyst, as he is known on Twitter, Stephen Schwartz, to explain what we know and don't 
about this bizarre and still very much developing situation in Russia where officials have been offering a whole bunch of contradictory information and secrecy about whatever happened that is all too reminiscent of the 1986 Chernobyl meltdown and other nuclear disasters in the old Soviet Union. So stay tuned for that conversation momentarily, uh, including Donald Trump's troubling response to it, by the way. But first, in slightly less disturbing news on the topic of getting rid of Donald Trump once and for all, Tom Steyer, the California billionaire who in recent years has been spending millions of dollars on TV ads to raise awareness and force action on global warming, before then spending many millions more on television ads to call for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Well, Steyer decided a few weeks ago that he was uh, he also was going to enter the 2020 Democratic presidential contest for some reason, I guess because he thought there were not enough white guys in the race yet. I don't know. In any event, when he announced that he was running, he also said he had planned to spend some $100 million of his own money on his own campaign. Must be nice. The day of his appointment, in, uh, mid, in of his announcement, I should say, in mid-July, Ben Mathis Lilly over at Slate wrote this. Steyer has virtually no national name recognition and no obvious co- voter constituency. And his progressive anti-corporate platform duplicates that of a number of better-known Democrats who are already in the race. Given this, some political commentators suggested that if Steyer's primary goal is defeating Donald Trump and defending American democracy, he might be better off putting his money into voter registration and turnout efforts instead of running his almost certain-to-fail campaign. Possibly... Uh, writes Mathis Lilly, the most influential way to spend such money would be in Florida, where a 2018 ballot initiative in the state restored voting rights to an estimated one and a half million people who'd uh, completed their prison terms and their parole and their probation for felony convictions. A subsequent Republican-sponsored bill, however, tacked on a requirement to that wildly popular statewide ballot initiative Uh, that such individuals must also pay all outstanding court fees, fines, and restitution penalties before they will be allowed to register. This is a substantial burden in a state whose criminal uh, criminal justice system funds itself in the first place by nickel-and-diming defendants with a wide variety of fines and fees that few can ever hope to fully pay off. Many observers have said the requirement uh, amounts to an unconstitutional poll tax in Florida, and indeed a lawsuit has been filed to block the measure on that grounds. But as Mathis Lilly writes, the available information suggests that the total owed by the estimated one million people affected by the new law is likely well over a billion dollars. But it is difficult to know for sure because there is no central state database that actually tracks these uh, debts. It's just one of the reasons why this law that Republicans passed in order to undercut the constitutional amendment adopted by voters was put in place in the first uh, in in the first place. Uh, not, uh, nonetheless, Mathis Lilly makes some back of the envelope estimates based on one of the lawsuits filed against this new law by the NAACP and the League of Women Voters. There are nine voters or potential voters, nine individuals 
who are named in this suit challenging this law. One is a woman who's technically on the hook for $59 million in restitution for a insurance fraud case. Another man owes $110,000 for an arson conviction. But taking them out, we find that the others owe an average of just over $1,400. So Mathis Lilly says instead of losing a presidential run, Tom Steyer could help restore the voting rights of about 70,000 people in Florida if he wanted to with that same $100 million that he is planning to spend on his own almost certain to fail presidential run. 70,000 people in the notoriously closely divided swing state of Florida. That could easily be enough on its own to swing the election from Donald Trump to whoever the Democratic nominee turns out to be. Not to mention the next governor of the state after uh, Republican uh, governor now Ron DeSantis. He's said to have won in 2018 by just about 35,000 votes across the state. The Republican Rick Scott unseated the Democratic Senator Bill Nelson in 2018 by about 10,000 votes. So, yeah, Tom Steyer, if you're concerned about democracy, you could help uh, uh, flip the entire nation, frankly, next year, based on what Florida may may do by, uh, you know, assuring 70,000 new voters are able to join the rolls who might not be able to join uh, as is under this law if the courts allow it to stand. So, uh, you know, this is is kind of maddening, at least to me. Uh, but with that in mind, from just a few weeks ago, I am not unhappy at all to see Stacey Abrams of Georgia and her newly announced plans for the 2020 election that she unveiled on Tuesday. She says she has decided that rather than joining the crowded field for the Democratic presidential nomination, she could better help her party in next year's election by, quote, making sure every eligible American who should cast a vote will be able to do so. Well, there's an idea. Thank you. Abrams, speaking at a union event in Las Vegas, announced a 20-state voter protection initiative. Using her experience challenging voting laws during her gubernatorial campaign last year in Georgia, which was marred by widespread irregularities, as The Washington Post describes it. She said, we're going to have a fair fight in 2020 because my mission is to make certain that no one has to go through in 2020 what we went through in 2018. The initiative, called Fair Fight 2020, takes its name from the organization that the Georgia Democrat founded last year after narrowly losing her bid to become the nation's first black female governor while running against voter suppressor Brian Kemp, who was secretary of state at the time as he was overseeing his own election to governor on, by the way, 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting machines in Georgia. So we'll never know who actually won or lost. But this new effort announced by Stacey Abrams uh, is expected to cost between four and five million dollars. It will target 20 states, most of them battlegrounds in the Midwest and Southeast and three states with gubernatorial elections this year. That would be Kentucky, Louisiana and Mississippi. 
Abrams has always said that she would likely run for office again, including for president and uh, a rematch with Brian Kemp in 2022. Despite being heavily courted by national party leaders, she did decide against challenging Senator David Perdue, who is up for re-election next year. Now, I am very happy that she has launched this effort. Very happy. Though I am also uh, disappointed that she's not running against Purdue for the U.S. Senate. I don't entirely understand that, other than she's angling perhaps for a vice presidential nod from whoever is eventually nominated by the Democrats. But still, uh, taking back the Senate must be a top priority for Democrats. And the fact that she will not run in Georgia for the Senate and presidential candidates like Beto O'Rourke won't run in Texas, Steve Bullock won't run in Montana, John Hickenlooper won't run in Colorado, all of whom would have little or no chance, frankly, of winning the Democratic nod for president at this point, but they would have a very good chance of flipping those Republican Senate seats from red to blue. All of that does not make me happy especially since just four seats, just those four people I named, four seats flipped from Republican uh, to Democrat would take control of the Senate from Mitch McConnell next year and hand it back to the to the Democrats, hopefully under a Democratic White House and with a Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. So my disappointment uh, over that, at least in the case of Abrams, is somewhat tempered by this important project that she is doing to protect and hopefully fight like hell for voters next year. Getting the picture yet, Tom Steyer? And your $100 million? By launching Fair Fight 2020, Abrams took herself out of the running for president, but she said she's still open to be uh, considered as a running mate for the eventual uh, nominee. She said she would be honored to be considered. But she says, I'm going to use energies and my very, very loud voice to raise the money we need to train people across the country in 20 battleground states to make sure that Donald Trump and the Senate take a hike and we put people in place who know what we need. During the speech, she criticized states for enacting polling place photo ID voting restrictions and for aggressively purging their voter rolls. She noted that Tennessee recently passed a law to make it harder for churches and community groups to do voter registration campaigns. She uh, said that part of the reason she had been talking about running for president was to call attention to voting rights and to make the case that Georgia should be considered a battleground state in 2020. I agree. The chief executive of Fair Fight, Lauren Grow Wargo, who was Abrams' former campaign manager, said that Abrams wants to help Democrats be more prepared to respond to the kinds of widespread irregularities that characterize the Georgia gubernatorial race including inaccurate voter rolls, shortages of voting machines and provisional ballots and lack of uniform rules for counting absentee ballots. Gro Wargo said Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight are uniquely situated to bring together the disparate parts of the Democratic Party around ensuring that we have the most robust, thoughtful voter protection operation in battleground states for 2020. And that work, she says, has to start this year. Well, hallelujah. About time uh, some of these Democrats figured this out. 
You don't wait until the general election starts or even worse, wait until after Election Day to start dealing with this. So uh, this is what I really I, I really appreciate this, that she's doing this now and she's doing it early and she's doing it in order to help all of the Democrats around the country organize around this idea of election protection. Uh, so I, I really do appreciate that. And uh, it was, you know, it's important that Democrats start working now. And that was the point that uh, Stacey Abrams and uh, the uh, Grow Warger were trying to make yesterday. Liz Conrad, Fair Fights Voter Protection Director, said that she and her team have found Democrats eager for their help. I bet. She said, as our team has traveled the country, two things have stood out. First, Democrats and our allies want and need to strengthen their voter protection programs. They're ready to do the work. Second, while everyone is ready to work, they didn't have all the resources to start now. But with Fair Fight 2020, they will. Well, we will see, but I certainly hope so. And I am really glad to see this effort. So uh, Growarga also said, I think we could see a new level of intimidation and intentional confusion next year. And this is a very important point because she notes that uh, the 2020 presidential election will be the first since the Republican National Committee was released from a federal consent decree that for more than three decades had limited what they were able to do at the polling place under the guise of so-called ballot security. So if you think they were bad in previous years, well, now their shackles are off and the Republicans will be able to get away with uh, all kinds of crap at the polling places when it comes to intimidation, certainly when it comes to voter purges and everything else. And also, don't forget dirty tricks. That's yep. what the RNC was originally uh, forced to sign that consent decree yeah. over. So not only do we have the uh, examples of the 2018 election in Georgia, you know, the massive and my very varied efforts of mm -hmm. trying to stop people from getting to vote, this is going to be writ large across the entire country, yeah. in every state, yeah. in every county. The reason they were extremely limited for the past 30 years uh, is because they were caught sending uh, people uh, in in uniforms, cops into areas and into trying minority to areas. In, into minority areas to try to intimidate them. If you show up to vote, you you might be arrested. Rightfully uh, or not, whether you've got anything or not, they might correct. just arrest you anyway, just because they can. So, uh, yeah. So those uh, shackles are now off the Republican Party. So buckle up. And it's a good idea that Democrats are planning in advance for a change. By the way, before we get to our break here, uh, some uh, maybe encouraging news. Uh, 2020 Democratic candidate John Hickenlooper, who I mentioned, as not running for the Senate in Colorado. Well, the New York Times is reporting that the former Colorado governor, uh, who is currently polling at 1% in the crowded Democratic uh, field, is in talks to launch a campaign against Republican Senator Cory Gardner next year. Instead, he may be dropping out of the presidential race. Gardner is widely considered to be one of the most vulnerable Republicans running for re-election in the Senate next year. So there's some good news. Apparently, uh, Hickenlooper reportedly spent 20 minutes driving around Iowa with fellow 2020 candidate Senator Michael Bennett, also a Democrat from Colorado, uh, on on a Friday last week to talk about the decision. So that could be coming soon. That could be some good news. Well, 
With that good news out of the way, uh, our current president responded to the mysterious and deadly explosion of a nuclear reactor, supposedly as part of a new experimental missile system in Russia, by saying it was, quote, not good, while tweeting out some potentially classified information about our own nuclear missile program in the bargain. Not good, to say the least. For a whole bunch of reasons, Stephen Schwartz of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists joins us next to explain what we know and still don't about this still developing and very disturbing story, this nuclear mystery now coming out of Russia. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com donate. And thank you. The Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The NATO alliance calls the project Skyfall. Russia calls its experimental, supposedly nuclear-propelled missile Burris Vestnik. Everyone now seems to regard whatever accident that occurred last Thursday during tests of, we think, some part of that missile system to be a tragedy. Though how it involved the missile exactly and how dangerous that accident may have really been is now a great source of confusion and speculation as Russia continues to hold its cards very close to its vest, leaving U.S. nuclear weapons analysts scrambling to understand what did or did not happen last week off the coast of northern Russia. According to the New York Times and a bunch of other news sources today, the Russian authorities on Tuesday announced the evacuation of the village nearest to the site of a nuclear accident in northern Russia, suggesting dangers more grave than initially reported. The still mysterious episode last week killed seven people, including five Russian nuclear scientists, and released radiation, apparently, when a small nuclear reactor malfunctioned during a test of a novel type of missile near a naval weapons testing site. Russian officials have released a flurry of misleading or incomplete statements playing down the severity of the accident, which the Russian military first reported last Thursday as a fire involving a liquid-fueled rocket engine. 
in which the official said there was no radiation released. It was not until Sunday that Russian scientists conceded that a reactor, yes, a nuclear reactor of some sort, had in fact released radiation during a test on an offshore platform in the White Sea of what they described as a, quote, nuclear isotope power source. That pattern of murkiness continued on Tuesday as news reports and official statements offered only the vaguest explanations for the evacuation and hours later seemed to indicate that it had been called off entirely. The previous announcement of a mandatory evacuation for which a train had been at least seemingly brought into the town to remove its residents Oddly enough, just for a few hours overnight, as originally indicated, that evacuation was then called off or it was never called at all, according to one regional official. Still, the possibility of evacuating the area raised the question of whether authorities see a continuing threat from Thursday's still unexplained explosion or may be preparing to retrieve the radioactive source, potentially posing yet new dangers. On Saturday, the Russian state news agency TASS cited an unnamed official at the Russian nuclear company Rosatom as saying that the explosion on the test platform had knocked the scientists who died into the sea, suggesting that the reactor or whatever remains of it also wound up in the water. Those five nuclear engineers who were killed were reportedly buried quickly on Monday in Sarov, a city that hosts Russia's main nuclear weapons research center. Officials, however, have insisted that radiation levels are not elevated in the area and that the on-again, off-again displacement of the population of that village near the test site, which is home to about 450 people, should not be called an evacuation. But one larger town, about 25 miles away from the mysterious blast, with a population of about 185,000 people, initially reported that radiation levels there had spiked. That post to the town's website was taken down the very next day after the blast, but things got even murkier in subsequent days. Scientists with the Russian Federal Nuclear Agency said finally on Saturday that Russian uh, that uh, radiation levels had, in fact, climbed just briefly to twice the background level in that nearby town. But on Tuesday, Russia's National Meteorological Agency reported radiation had risen to at least 16 times the norm in that city last week. No reports indicated the level in Nanaxa, that's the tiny village of 450 people located on the edge of the test range. A regional news site, Northern News, reported that doctors at a civilian hospital in the largest city in the region who had first treated the victims of the accident had not been informed of any radiological danger. After treating the patients, however, the doctors at Regional Clinical Hospital found that their scrubs were causing radiation meters to click. The patients themselves were taken to Moscow and their rooms were then uh, sealed where they had been treated at the hospital. Then, the report says, the doctors themselves were transferred to the capital for medical evaluations. Russian President Vladimir Putin boasted last year that Russia was testing a cruise missile that would be propelled by a small nuclear reactor in addition to carrying a nuclear warhead, flying a path that would be too unpredictable to be intercepted 
Western analysts called the missile Skyfall. And on Monday, Donald Trump tweeted that the accident last week was a Skyfall explosion. He also tweeted some information about what he described as a U.S. program that has, quote, similar, though more advanced, technology, which may or may not be true and may or may not be highly classified information in the bargain. The Russian authorities have not said what the new type of weapon was that was linked to the accident, but they have acknowledged that radioactive material and a reactor were involved in the incident at a missile testing range. So what is or is not going on here? What the hell was Donald Trump tweeting about? What do we actually know or even surmise about the weapon in question and the, yes, actual fallout from whatever went so horribly wrong last Thursday? Well, much of that is still being surmised by nuclear weapons experts who are reviewing whatever information and details they can find, including various grainy satellite photos from before and after whatever this accident was. We're joined now by one of those experts to try and answer at least some of these questions. Our old friend Stephen Schwartz is a nuclear weapons policy analyst and the former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. That's the decades-old uh, uh, proprietors of the uh, infamous doomsday clock, the analogous warning to the world of how close we may be at any given time to annihilation of planet Earth. He is now a non-resident senior fellow with the Bulletin and also the former editor of the Non-Proliferation Review at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. Stephen Schwartz, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for inviting me back, Brad. I am not even sure where to begin with this one, frankly. There is so much that seems to be unknown still about what happened and, and what, what the secretive project actually is that appears to have gone so terribly wrong. So before we get into the specifics of that project, of that weapon uh, believed to be in question here, let me just start with a reaction to it by, Russian govern by the Russian uh, government. You've been following this sort of thing much closer and much longer than I have, but the confusion and the contradictions and the changing stories that are trickling out seems very reminiscent of the Soviet Union's initial response to the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl. How is that incident analogous as you see it or not analogous to what appears to be the uh, Russian response to this still mysterious incident in northern Russia? Well, I think what this shows is that old habits die hard and the Soviet Union has gone Russia remains, uh, but this reaction, as you said, is, is quite reminiscent, not just of, of Chernobyl, uh, but also of the sinking of the uh, Kursk uh, ballistic missile submarine in August of mm -hmm. 2000, mm -hmm. the uh, accident in 1957 at the nuclear reprocessing plant uh, in Mayak, where a vat or a huge tank of uh, highly radioactive waste exploded, and the Soviet Union never publicly acknowledged that for, for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, so these things happen, and because of entrenched secrecy, because of fear, because of uh, Soviet or Russian bureaucracy, uh, left hand might not knowing, you know, know what the right hand is doing, uh, and, and some paranoia, uh, they just they prefer not to uh, reveal information unless they have to, and now in this case they have to because we're now in the age of social media and it's impossible, and, and in open source intelligence, and it's impossible 
to keep all of these, uh, all this information completely hidden away. So it comes out in uh, dribs and drabs, mm-hmm. and you know what looks like a very uncoordinated approach. Clearly, I don't think they were anticipating uh, any sort of accident occurring during this apparent uh, missile test or mm-hmm. missile engine test. And if they were, they certainly weren't. However, they're executing their strategy for dealing with it. Is not going very well. Did they, uh, in those uh, incidents you rattled off there, uh, the Kursk submarine and so forth, and the other uh, nuclear accidents, did they ever actually uh, come clean on what happened in those incidents? And if so, how, you know, how long was it before they, they did? Because I'm, I'm curious when you say, oh, that's the way they used to operate. They're still trying to operate that way now, but they can't these days in the days of uh, social media. Uh, w- what makes you so sure they can't still keep a lot of this stuff uh, completely a secret? Well, there are still many things that we don't know, despite that very thorough introduction you gave. We don't know exactly uh, what happened in mm-hmm. this instance. You know, We know that uh, because President Putin flamboyantly announced it, uh, in uh, early last year that mm-hmm. they were uh, building and testing this new nuclear-armed, uh, nuclear-propelled cruise missile. So we knew, you know, and we thought at first that might have been a boast, and it turns out that, no, it actually wasn't. They seemed to be actually working on it, and they, it looked like they had tested it, and mm-hmm. that information came out that the test all seemed to have failed, and then they packed up the test site uh, at, on the island of Novaya Zemlya and apparently moved it, to where the accident occurred a week ago uh, tomorrow, on Thursday. And uh, so apparently they are working on it, and this is, I should just say, this is not a a completely new idea. It's probably something that they uh, initially developed during the Cold War and then probably shelved when the Cold War ended. And we, in fact, tried something similar and abandoned it for very good reasons, partly because it was exceedingly dangerous uh, during the testing phase Mm -hmm. as well as if we'd ever done it. Operationally, so there are yeah. There's still many things we don't know. Chernobyl, you know, since you brought that up, I mean, they at first, you know, the, the Soviet Union tried to comp- keep that completely secret. Uh, then uh, radiation detectors at a reactor in Sweden picked up elevated levels of airborne radiation and traced it back to uh, scientists were able to trace it back to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, then they were forced to admit, okay, there was a accident, but everything was okay. And then eventually, you know, we got more information. No, everything is not okay. The reactor is burning and completely destroyed. The radiation is spreading far and wide. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, they only admitted things there when they absolutely had to. And if, any, you know, your listeners have seen the excellent uh, miniseries on HBO, I think it does a, a superb job of, of showing how the Soviet bureaucracy tried to handle that. The Kursk accident in 2000 was a little different there. You're not dealing with a commercial power plant, you're dealing with a military submarine at sea, mm-hmm. uh, but again, because of the nature of that accident, they couldn't completely hide you know, what was going on. They tried to say everything's under control, and then they had to admit that no, it's not, and the submarine sank. So, um, you know, th- I guess their, their first approach is admit only what you have to to try to make the situation seem not so terrible, and then when you can't do that, uh, you, you admit as much as you have to in order to try to deal with, you know, whatever the concerns mm-hmm. are. Well, let's talk about the actual uh, missile or weapon in, in question here. You, you noted that uh, Putin had boasted about this uh, nuclear-powered cruise missile, I think it was uh, in, in March of last year. 
and he was citing a raft of bizarre new strategic weapons. Uh, the the missile uh, at the center of last week's explosion, uh, we we think, uh, was successfully tested in late 2017. According to Reuters, it had an, uh, quote, unlimited range, whatever that means, and was, quote, invincible against all existing and prospective missile defense and counter-air uh, defense systems, at least according to Putin. So what do we know and, and not know, I guess, about this missile project, so-called Skyfall by Western officials at the center of this? Uh, and do we even know for certain that that is the project in question that went so horribly awry on Thursday? I don't know that we know that for certain, but all of the pieces of information that we do know mm -hmm. point back to it being probably that program. But things are still uh, murky, again, because the Russians haven't uh, been completely upfront about mm -hmm. what happened. So I suppose as time goes on, we might know more. Um, to take a, a step back, you know, why would, why would Russia even want to produce such a dangerous weapon? And you mentioned uh, you know, the, uh, the virtually unlimited yield. Well, mm -hmm. when we were trying to do this back from 1957 to 1964 uh, with a program called SLAM for supersonic low-altitude missile uh, that would have been powered by a reactor that had the codename of Pluto, mm -hmm. the idea was that in the wake of the uh, Sputnik, uh, launch of Sputnik, uh, the first artificial satellite in 1957, we needed to have some sort of weapon that could not be uh, defeated or shot down by the Soviet Union. We hadn't yet developed ICBMs yet, or at least we hadn't deployed very many of them. Mm -hmm. We had a bomber fleet, but we thought those were vulnerable. So some bright person came up with the idea of a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Uh, and these are not the cruise missiles that we think of today that are around 20 feet long, the warheads for which are about three feet long, and, you know, you could easily carry in a car. Mm -hmm. These were massive, you know, 60 odd feet long things, and powering it with a nuclear reactor means that it doesn't have combustible fuel. So when they say virtually unlimited range, that's what they mean. It can fly around as long as you want, uh, as long as the reactor is operating, dropping bombs, uh, doing reconnaissance, whatever it is that you want it uh, to do. And so they seem to have resurrected this idea, or maybe they came up with it on their own. Uh, but in any case, uh, they... Uh, you need to test this weapon in order to see if it will work, and that's where the problem seems to have occurred, um, where the reactor itself or some part of it seems to have exploded uh, on this um, offshore platform, testing platform on the ship, killing, you know, as you said, mm -hmm. at least seven people and, and releasing some significant amount of radiation, at least for, for a short period of time. But they seem to be wanting to do this because they are very concerned and have been for almost two decades with our ballistic missile defense system. We've made a lot of claims about our system. Most of them aren't true, uh, but the Russians have an undying faith in American technology and a fair degree of paranoia about what we're going to do with it, and they've decided that they need to find a way to counter it, and one way to counter it is develop a weapon that our missile defense system can't shoot down, therefore, a cruise missile. So, th if I understand it correctly, then, there is a small nuclear reactor on each of these missiles, uh, if they exist, uh, that would allow the missile to just keep flying and flying and flying around and basically stay in uh, 
uh, I don't low um, atmosphere. I mean, I'm not even sure where these missiles go. Do they just fly around like planes, like drones, until they are needed to shoot off a weapon, or do they then finally uh, crash into their target and explode in a nuclear reaction uh, as they are designed? Well, crashing would be not an optimal thing. Uh, it is. It is a flying reactor. Uh, our version, and it's not clear exactly what the Russians are doing, but our version was a nuclear ramjet. In a normal ramjet, the speed of the uh, object, the aircraft or the missile, uh, when it's going supersonic speeds, uh, forces air into an engine as mm -hmm. it superheats and comes out the back end that produces thrust. A nuclear ramjet uses a nuclear reactor to superheat the air, and that provides the thrust. Um, the problem with using a nuclear reactor in this fashion, as we knew all too well in the late 50s and early 60s, is that it's basically unshielded, because if you shield a nuclear reactor, it can't fly. Mm -hmm. And so you're passing air directly through the core of the reactor to heat it up, and when you do that, it becomes radioactive. So if you not only have a missile that, has, that is carrying nuclear bombs and it's designed to drop a number of them, and the SLAM missile could carry, I think, half a dozen or more, uh, but you also have it spewing highly radioactive exhaust everywhere it goes. And so one reason we ended up killing the program is that people who thought it would be really nifty to work on, and I'm sure it was technologically, as Robert Oppenheimer used to say about the atomic bomb, uh, technologically sweet, uh, it would also be exceedingly dangerous. Just in normal operation, mm -hmm. as it's flying around, it's going to spew all this radioactive gunk everywhere it goes, including over our allies, whose territory it would have to fly to reach the Soviet Union. And God forbid it was shot down or crashed. Mm -hmm. I mean, then think about, you know, a Chernobyl or a Fukushima, but it's flying around. Then it crashes, then you've got all the radiation released. Obviously, it would be smaller than, than a ground-based reactor, but still, it would be really, really nasty. And so for all of those reasons, we essentially we just, we gave up on the program and decided to go with ICBMs, which was a smarter thing to do. And uh, presuming that this project that Russia is working on is, is like that uh, Project Pluto uh, thing, uh, this type of missile... Well, would it have been banned? Uh, as I understand it, it would have been banned under previous anti-proliferation treaties between the U.S. and, and Russia. No? Treaties that have since been scrapped by both nations? No, it, it wouldn't be covered. For example, we just walked away from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty mm -hmm. uh, that was signed in 1987 uh, because John Bolton, National Security Advisor, and Donald Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo decided we needed to deploy intermediate-range missiles to counter China, and we didn't like the fact that Russia, Russia was cheating on it, and we didn't want to try to get them back in compliance. So we scrapped it. But this is not an intermediate-range missile. It's a missile of almost unlimited range. Uh, it's also not ground-based, and the INF Treaty only covered ground-based missiles. It doesn't really, it's not really covered by the New START Treaty either hmm. uh, because it's not, it's not the kind of weapon that's written in there. So it's one of these categories of weapons that's sort of out there that wasn't included because it was never really on the drawing boards when that treaty was signed. Mm. So there is no, there's no, you know, technical or legal violation of any arms control agreement. There's some serious uh, environmental concerns, obviously, and obviously security concerns, but it's nothing that would be covered by an existing treaty. It probably should be. Um, you know, and again, I think the reason that 
Russia is pursuing this is because we walked away, speaking of walking away from treaties, mm-hmm. we walked away from the ABM Treaty in 2002 after announcing we were going to do it the year before. And when we did that, Putin and Russia warned us that they were going to respond. It's just taken them about 17 years mm. uh, to do so. And this is the result. So, again, their fear, their paranoia, their desire to make sure that we cannot destroy them as a country has led them to the point where they are testing this exceedingly dangerous weapon, obviously to themselves at the moment, potentially to the rest of the world if they ever get it to work. Uh, And, you know, I think they're willing to come back to the negotiating table if we're willing to talk about our missile defense system, but we're not. And so their work proceeds. Uh, I've got uh, speaking with Stephen Schwartz, uh, otherwise known as Atomic Analyst on the Twitters. He's a uh, nuclear weapons policy analyst. Stephen, I, 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 Trump had tweeted out quote, in response to this quote, the United States is learning much from the failed missile explosion in Russia. We have similar, though more advanced technology. He said the Russian skyfall explosion has people worried about the air around the facility and far beyond. Not good, he said in his classic Trumpian way, uh, setting aside whatever snark uh, in in response to that tweet, did he disclose some sort of classified information about, quote, similar, though more advanced technology of the U.S. in that remark? Is that something that anyone is aware of? Is he right? Is he wrong? Is he disclosing classified information? You know, it's always difficult to know what's going on in Donald Trump's mind, especially when he talks about nuclear weapons. This sounds like something that he put together after he got an intelligence briefing, which might well have been as simplistic as the tweet you just read. Um, it's we, As far as I know, and I have been looking at these issues for decades, mm-hmm. we have no nuclear-powered cruise missile or any other kind of missile uh, in development. There is something that NASA is working on, which would use a nuclear reactor to power a rocket to Mars, but that is not for military purposes, and it would not operate in the atmosphere. So, A, uh, it's possible he has no idea what he's talking about. B, he might have confused this NASA program or decided to simply talk about it because, uh, you know, he's boasting about it. Uh, Or it is possible, I suppose, because all of this, much of this is highly secretive, Mm -hmm. that there is something going on that somehow they've managed to keep secret for a long time, uh, and uh, you know, haven't divulged to Congress even. So where they're getting the money for it, I don't know. But I think it would be insane for us to go back to the drawing board and re uh, revive the Project Pluto uh, slam missile idea. It was killed for very good reason. Mm-hmm. It was killed because it was stupid, because it was exceedingly dangerous and because it, because it was unnecessary. There's no reason for it to exist other than to give engineers and weapons designers something to do. So I don't know why he said that. Um, it's problematic. And, of course, then the next day the Russians responded and said basically a spokesman on behalf of President Putin said, our missiles are better than yours. So now we have a nuclear measuring contest between the president of Russia and the president of the United States, which is the last thing the world needs. Uh, if the reactor from this experiment was indeed blown into the sea when it exploded, as that uh, TASS report had suggested, 
what, what dangers does that uh, present to, well, the, certainly the fishing industry off the north coast of, uh, of Russia, in the White Sea, in the Barents Sea, uh, not to mention those in, in nearby nations of, of Finland, Norway, Sweden, for example? Uh, is it uh, possible that it actually poses a danger to that wide of an area? It's certainly possible, and there was a snippet of information in a New York Times story a couple of days ago that said uh, the Russians have issued a notice to mariners that have basically shut down that bay for the next month, which suggests that they're doing some uh, cleanup and possible retrieval of whatever it is that fell into the water. The fact that there have been you know, multiple reports of these localized radiation spikes certainly mm-hmm. suggests that something went horribly awry in the immediate vicinity. We certainly haven't seen, you know, reports of increased radiation, nor am I aware of any reports outside of Russia that would suggest that the radiation has somehow drifted further away or it continues to be emitted. But certainly going into the water, you know, not great. I mean, the old joke uh, from our, you know, quote-unquote best practices for managing nuclear waste uh, in the 1950s and 1960s is... uh, Dilution is the solution to pollution. So, uh, you know, but you don't really want to uh, uh, dump a nuclear reactor or any kind of radioactive material into the water. It will certainly dilute, uh, but in a relatively enclosed area like that bay, um, it's, it's not going to be diluted as it would be like, let's say, in the open ocean. So, mm-hmm. you know, time, time will tell, and you know, it would be helpful if the Russians would release more information about exactly what happened and you know, even some indications about how much radioactivity locally they're they're discovering. But as far as I know, they haven't done that yet, it, so we're all left to speculate. Is it is it even possible to safely retrieve and remove a uh, a, a reactor or the or the nuclear material, whatever it is? Uh, from the bottom of the seeds and bring it to a protected facility without endangering those uh, you know who live and work along the the path where they're carrying this material, um, this radioactive material that you know that the people would have to. I mean, I'm wondering if that village that was supposedly going to be evacuated for a few hours, if that had something to do with removing material from the test site and clearing the people out of there when they did it. Is any of that even possible? Uh, It's certainly possible to retrieve uh, a reactor or radioactive components from a reactor. Doing it underwater would be more complicated, but it's not, uh, you know, it, it, it has been done before, and I would note that one of the, the ship that was in the area when the test occurred that was involved with the test belongs to uh, Rosatom, which is the government uh, agency that is uh, you know, partly responsible for helping to develop this missile and also has other mm-hmm. uh, functions within the Soviet nuclear weapons uh, and nuclear industry. So uh, they, they have the capability for transporting uh, that kind of material, and if they don't have uh, you know, remotely operated vehicles to try to find something underwater. Uh, I'm sure they will, uh, you know, develop something to do so. So I'm not saying it would be easy, but I don't see how it would be impossible. I mean, the bay can't be, uh, you know, that deep, and, you know, they've got some indications of uh, where this material went, I presume. Well, so, they can get it, I presume, but I'm just wondering how, if they do get it, uh, you know, uh, what they do then. I mean, <laughs> where do they transport it without Well, you people? put it on this ship, which is designed to transport radioactive materials, and then you uh, take it back somewhere 
uh, safe to uh, presumably analyze what went wrong uh, and then dispose of it uh, uh, properly, one hopes. Um, so, you know, not, not unprecedented by any means, not necessarily easy, but not impossible either. And finally, I've got about 30 seconds, uh, Stephen. Uh, what is really, what is the point of all of this? Is this uh, sort of weapon actually needed to protect Russia, or is this just part of the, the paranoia and, the uh, you know, starting up a new arms race to show who's uh, the, the bigger tough guy? Well, Russia seems to believe it's needed. They, again, believe that our missile defense system, work, our missile defense system works as well as we say it does. Uh, it doesn't actually, but they don't believe us. They have this undying faith that our missile technology and our anti-missile technology is superior to theirs. So they come, have come up with an idea for a weapon that they believe we cannot uh, shoot down. And as long as we continue to insist that we have to have missile defenses and they believe that they work, they will apparently continue to try to find a way uh, around them. There's a simple solution to this, which is to simply go back to the negotiating table uh, talk to them. I'm not saying they will necessarily trust us completely, but meet them, possibly meet them halfway, and find a way to defuse this situation before more Russians or, God forbid, other people get injured or killed. Stephen Schwartz is a nuclear weapons policy analyst. He's the former executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, uh, where he is now a fellow. Uh, Stephen, I think the clock last I checked was at two and a half minutes to midnight. Is that where we where we last left that uh, doomsday clock? I think we're at two minutes to midnight. Two minutes to midnight. Is this the sort of thing that moves the uh, moves the hand closer to midnight, or is this the reason why the hands are at two minutes to midnight in the first place? Uh, it is one of a number of reasons why the hands have only gotten closer to midnight since Donald Trump became president. Certainly the abandonment of the INF Treaty by the United States is another negative indicator. Uh, the clock also looks at global warming issues, and there's nothing going uh, great in that sector either. So uh, this is just another one of a series of things that the uh, bulletin will be looking at over the next few months before it makes an announcement in January about where the hands will be set next. But uh, I would be very much surprised if they move further away from midnight at this point. You can uh, follow those ha those hands and Stephen Schwartz at thebulletin.org. You can follow him on the Twitters at Atomic Analyst. Stephen Schwartz, uh, always great to talk to you. Never good uh, circumstances under which you're here, but uh, it's always helpful as usual. Thanks, Stephen. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, let's take a quick break, and we will come back with our closing few minutes. Uh, not enough to do what I was planning to do, as usual, because I got too wrapped up in that conversation. But we'll have something to talk about right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. 
It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. That song is uh, is called Radioactive, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Radioactive. Imagine dragons. Well done, Desi Doyen. Yep. Uh, over the uh, over the break, there uh, we were quickly chatting with Stephen Schwartz uh, to say goodbye. And Des, you had a question for him. Yes, that, um, uh, I had asked him essentially. Uh, so, do, why is Russia doing this? Do they really believe that the U.S. is going to attack them? Is that why they're developing a new missile weapon system? And yeah, and he essentially said, "Well, it's paranoia. It's uh, you know been in place in in Russia for a long time." And we got to chatting very quickly about the fact that you know when we talk about Russian paranoia, please remember. The U.S. has for years been building missile defense systems on the border of Russia. Since the Soviet Union broke up, we told them that NATO would not encroach on the border, but NATO has encroached on the border, and we've been building these missile systems literally on their border. Uh, you know, and uh, he he pointed out uh, that, uh, well, we've told them that the Obama administration tried to tell them that these would not be used to attack you. Right. But, you know, do you think that the U.S., would we accept that if if Russia, let's say, decided to start installing missile systems, defensive missile systems in Mexico on the border, in Canada on the border, pointed in our direction? Right. And and it seems oh, like there's no way that Russia would accept that. So that we would accept that, that from Russia. Right. Right. And, and so it it is surprising to me that that, you know, he also mentioned the uh, rhetoric from Trump administration officials mm-hmm. like Secretary of State Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton, who right. have been, you know, saber rattling about the nuclear weapons and nuclear yeah. missile capabilities as if uh, people can, are concerned that somehow the U.S. is not strong enough. And then add to that the Democrats and Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, you know, going after uh, Putin and going after Russia, uh, doing that same saber rattling. Uh, Yeah, you know what? If they're paranoid in Russia, I'd say they have a right to be. That's just me. Uh, All right. We got to get out. My thanks to once again, atomic analyst Stephen Schwartz of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends, families, and neighbors. And you can uh, thank those folks who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate for making those free podcasts available to you. bradblog.com slash donate. We'd love to see you there if you haven't stopped by recently. Uh, You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and you'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.